It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Now that COVID is receding and Las Vegas is re-emerging, what are the strategies that resorts and casinos can implement in recovering revenues and, more importantly, customers? My guest has some perspective on this challenge. He's Oliver Lovett, a leading academic, researcher, writer, and strategy consultant. He's an expert in customer-facing real estate and the evolution of Las Vegas, serving on the faculty at City University of London Business School in London, and as a regular contributor at UNLV. He also leads the Denstone Group, which offers strategic advice and consultancy on investment and development with a focus on casino resorts. For everything about Oliver, go to denstonegroup.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Ali Lovett. And Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. It's an interesting time, isn't it, for Las Vegas? Given your knowledge of the history of Las Vegas and the financial history as well, which we can talk about, but now we're just coming out of COVID and everything seems to be pointing in the right direction. We had a very full weekend last weekend, supposedly 100% occupancy. But what do you see as the challenges for the next year in recovering from all of this that went on? Well, the actual largest challenge for the operators is still, you know, Monday to Friday. That is, while we, uh, the conventions are coming back slowly, the uh, weekend market, the leisure market is, is uh, going at full pelter, but midweek market is still quiet. And that is a combination of the conventions not fully ramping up yet um, no, and no international travel. So what we saw historically was the international travelers would come to Las Vegas and stay for significantly longer than domestic tourists. And they spend more. So when the borders are, are open and the conventions are back in full force in 2022, I can see that being a record year for Las Vegas. So what do resorts do in the meantime while they wait for 2022? How do they maximize what they can do in terms of, as I mentioned in the opening, not just generating revenue, but really bringing customers back? Well, the resorts, funnily enough, have had a, a very interesting time during COVID because it gave everybody a chance to take a deep breath and pause and assess their business models. So as everything reopened again, a lot of the um, intensive labor had cut back during COVID. A lot of the amenities that were loss leading or marginal were closed because of COVID, which left the resort's profile effectively having, you know, some, some simple food and beverage or some limited food and beverage and gaming. So the resorts themselves, you know, thankfully have survived COVID and come back even stronger. And if you look at the model, for example, in downtown Las Vegas, where they didn't have significantly heavy amenities, the Fremont market and the downtown market has proved especially resilient with the customers that are, that are wanting to come here. Because they're focused on gambling as opposed to worrying about nice shows or great food or any other events, Correct. rooms, Correct. et cetera. And also a lot less, uh, I, and, and, you know, the downtown market is a, lot, is a lot less reliant on the conventions and international market. So, you know, like I said, the strip model for the last 20 years has been predominantly catering for conventions and internationals and long-stay tourists, and less so about the traditional drive-in customer from Southern California. I think if you look at 
2019, the LVCVA reported that the drive-in customer from Southern California was the lowest it had ever been. So the entire you know strategy that had been implemented by many of the strip operators has had to be paused. While the, the, the main customer that could come here was that drive customer, especially when people were so reluctant to fly. And for our listeners who are outside of Las Vegas, LVCVA stands for Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. Just wanted to throw yes. that in. But a lot of people don't know the acronym. But Oliver, here's the thing, and it sounds counterintuitive. You mentioned how downtown can recover more quickly than the Strip because of the nature of the customers there. I always was surprised that given the congestion, if that's the term, or the crowding, and that may not be the term, but the intensive packing in of people on Fremont Street and all the adjoining resorts and casinos, so they're all side to side, especially during COVID, you think there'd be a little bit more concern about people getting that close to other people. And the strip, or on the strip, it's a little bit different of a setup. So you have to mainly worry about being in a casino with a lot of people, not so much walking on a sidewalk. But in downtown, they're always packed. So how is it that that still worked out during COVID? So about a year ago, while we were in the the depressing period when all the casinos were closed and people were speculating whether Las Vegas had a future. A bunch of us academics and researchers sat on a, on a Zoom call and said, how is Las Vegas going to recover? Is it going to recover? You know, uh, when are people going to come back again? So we sat down and put together a research paper called Las Vegas a Post-COVID Landscape. And we interviewed a, a, a thousand Las Vegas customers and 40 casino and resorts executives to ask them what they thought was happening, was going to happen, and with the customers when they would be back to Las Vegas again. And what we saw, this was before there was a vaccine and before there was a treatment, we, we discovered that nearly 50% of people that usually come to Las Vegas will be back within 12 months, even if it meant the risk of being sick. And that, for us, was reasonably astonishing. I would say so. What, what was the reason given? Because they wanted to come to Las Vegas. So nothing specific as far as the shows, the rooms, the gambling, or, or maybe all of it, the, the retail shopping, the, all of that. They just wanted the experience of Las Vegas, is what you're saying. Right. And we can talk later on about the psychology of what Las Vegas means, because it means an awful lot more than a sum of its parts. That sense of escape that sense of, of aspiration, whatever it may be why people choose to come here, they wanted to get away from their lockdown, they're sitting at home, and they wanted to come to Las Vegas and have that, that escape. And, you know, if you take a step back and look at the numbers of people that actually came to Las Vegas in 2020, considering there was a, a lockdown, a pandemic, no conventions, no international business, and you know a, a, an economic recession the likes of which the country had ever seen, 19.3 million people still came to Las Vegas. Now, granted, that's down from the 43 million that we had the previous year, but that's still pretty much more you know, than any major city had from a, you know, from a tourist perspective, probably in the world. Because of your background, you are consulting with individual resorts and casinos, and yet this approach to Las Vegas is more of a global approach in that, how do we attract visitors to Las Vegas? But then again, individual properties, how do we attract our customers back? Do you see a demarcation line between the overall global appeal of Las Vegas, as you, as you talked about, and the very specific steps needed by individual properties to get their customers back? 
Well, first of all, you know, what's interesting about Las Vegas is it may not be the largest city in the world in terms of gaming revenue that belongs to Macau. And you can probably find a blackjack table in, in most cities in the world somewhere. People get on a flight and travel for 10, 12, 15, 20 hours to come to Las Vegas. Because there is something about this city that is more than just coming to have a gamble. Yes, no it doubt is, about uh, it. it but, what, but what is it? I mean, have a, were, you, were you and the rest of the people that got together for that study, were you able to determine what that was? Or, or is it just an intangible? It's a sense of escape. Is, is what it is. I think Las Vegas, you know, people behave in Las Vegas in ways that they don't do in their hometown. That is something which we've identified, uh, you know, in, in previous research. They're likely to spend more money in food. They're likely to spend more money in entertainment. Granted, those, you know, some of those options weren't necessarily open for them to do. But, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, when we were concerned about the viability or, and sustainability of the city, the outcomes that we've seen with people still desiring to come here is remarkable. And it says quite a lot about the operators themselves and their ability to market and manage the city. In fact, the only criticism I would have of Las Vegas was we opened too well. When the doors opened again this time last year, you, you know the numbers of people that were coming in were way beyond what I think the resorts were, were anticipating. And we hadn't quite set out a strategy yet you know, to how to manage operating businesses with a, an ongoing pandemic. Do people wear masks? Do they not wear masks? How many people at a table? Plexiglass, no plexiglass. So these things bore out in the, in the subsequent months, you know, after people started coming back again. But I think, you know, like, like we said, uh, the, you know, selling post-COVID Las Vegas has been remarkable. It has. And one of the other elements, you didn't allude to it yet, but when you talked about Resorts not necessarily anticipating the crowds that they got initially, and also whether to wear a mask or not wear a mask and plexiglass barriers, etc. We have to take into account that a lot of that is subject to either the state itself or gaming regulators. Correct. Yes. It, uh, and, and the governor. Sure. That's what I mean. In other words, it's either yes. coming from the state as a, as a state emergency order from the governor or a regulation from either the gaming commission or the gaming control board. So the operators, they're working within an interesting universe in that they are opening to the public, but they also are subject to regulations both in the general law point of view and in the gaming regulatory point of view. Correct. But, and there was no standardization of response. So, you know, you found some, some properties were far more stringent in terms of what they were allowing and others were far more lax. Uh, and it was only when the uniformity came in that there seemed to be a lot more comfort. Going back to the research, which I mentioned, if you, if you drill down into the data, and I can make this report available you know, for your listeners so they can download it you know, from your site. Sure. That'd um, be great. You find that you know, the over 60s were obviously far less likely to come. And the fear that they had wasn't necessarily of COVID per se. Their fear was the behavior of other customers coming to Las Vegas. So while a large proportion were very happy wearing a mask, they felt their position was compromised by the fact that other people weren't. So when that standardization of response came into place, it seemed to, be, it seemed to give much more comfort to everybody in the city or to the visitors who were coming to the city. Sure. It, it set the rules for everybody. So there wasn't a kind of a Wild West atmosphere where some wore masks and others didn't. 
Everybody knew what the ground rules were. Correct. And that's it. You, You talked about properties adjusting to COVID by eliminating certain operations, certain amenities, et cetera. One of the quote unquote amenities that I think went by the wayside and was cheered both by the locals and by visitors, I would think, is that notion of paid parking. Well, yeah, I've, I've written about paid parking quite, quite a bit. I've become quite infamous for it because I think it's a terrible idea. I agree. I understand the need why. For well, I'll give you an example. If you're a large casino operator, to operate a valet service is expensive. And cost you millions of dollars, of which you can't get any return on. It costs between twenty-one and thirty-one thousand dollars to build a car parking space in Las Vegas. So these are, you know, heavy costs, and you get no return on your investment. Well, well for hang, them. On, hang on a second, though, Oliver. You know, <laughs> Walmart doesn't charge for parking at Walmart because they understand that those parking spots are a conveyor belt to the store. So parking at a casino is a conveyor belt whether it's valet or self-parking, is a conveyor belt to the casino. In other words, why are you punishing your customers? I, I agree with you. Uh, so, so having worked for the operator's side, looking at you know, this, the, the, the question of car parking, you know, I'll, set out, I'll set out the case and where I think the problems were with the implementation of it. I think that a lot of operators realized they needed to generate some kind of additional revenue from their customers. And they saw that car parking was an easy way to do it because people don't mind paying for, for parking in, in other major cities. And there's a huge sunk cost into the, into the parking infrastructure. So that is how the operators looked at it. What they failed to understand was the reaction from the customers. So it was damaging on, on multiple levels. Number one, the locals who've got plenty of alternatives to stop coming into the strip to eat if they were going to park. Second of all, it was counterintuitive to understanding the model of the gaming industry. Traditionally, if you want people to come into a casino, you want them to stay as long as possible. You don't want them to keep an eye on their time so that after two hours and 55 minutes, they have to run out the casino because, you know, they're going to have to start paying incrementally for their parking. Number three was traditionally this drive market that had come from Southern California was the staple for all, of, for all of Las Vegas since time immemorial. Las Vegas is seen as the easternmost suburb of Los Angeles. And, you know, to, 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 to expect people to come here and park, it becomes a lot more expensive. So as we, as we mentioned before, the drive customers stop coming in. Fourthly, the most interesting thing for somebody like me who studies customer behaviors, people aren't born gamblers. You don't come to Las Vegas on your first time and become a $1,000 craps player. It doesn't happen. What happens is though, people come to Las Vegas on multiple times and usually by their eighth time, they're comfortable to play games with over a with thousand dollar budget, but it takes eight trips to do that. And especially for those that are driving from, from Southern California, over the course of the 2000s, that went from 1.4 times a year to 1.8 times a year. So the, the number of years it took for that customer to become a $1,000 customer was condensed. However, after the car parking charges were introduced, people were notably coming to Las Vegas less. That 1.8 figure dropped. So altogether, and, and, the, and the sixth point, the most important one is the psychology. 
of the Las Vegas experience. We've spent hundreds of millions of dollars creating portico shares and volcanoes and fountains and, you know, to take people away from reality into the hyper-reality that we create. But by instituting car parking at Valet, the last thing they see before coming in to forget their worries wasn't, oh, my word, how amazing are these, you know, lush landscape gardens and, uh, and fountains? It was, oh, $27 per day, four days, 100. Okay, so that's 100. You know, so you, you are saying the last thing they do before they leave their car is making a mental calculation of how much it's going to cost them for parking rather than, you know, well, forget the gas bill, honey, we're here to party. Right to the point. And let's take a break because I want to talk a little bit more about that and then come back to some other issues. My guest, Oliver Lovett, is a leading academic, researcher, writer, and strategy consultant. For everything about Oliver, go to denstonegroup.com and you can follow him on Twitter at Ollie Lovett. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. Come discover a world of possibilities. A world of wonder. A world carefully curated with interactive, hands-on experiences that put the unique needs of children to play, explore, belong, and learn right where they should be. And that's first. Discovery Children's Museum. Our kids first. For more information, please visit discoverykidslv.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Oliver Lovett. He is a leading academic, researcher, writer, and strategy consultant. For everything about Oliver, go to denstonegroup.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Ali Lovett. And Oliver, let's just finish up this paid parking thing, because I agreed with your analysis, but it would seem to me that common sense would dictate that you don't make it difficult for customers to get into your place. Yeah, I mean, so, so what got me interested in Las Vegas in the first place, wasn't a, wasn't a gambling. I'm not a, and I'm not a gambling or a gaming guy, unlike so many people that are here. I'm a strategy. I was a strategy, a real estate strategy consultant in the UK. And what attracted me about Las Vegas is this is the most competitive market on earth. You have a dozen operators or properties selling the same prop, the same offering, at the same time, at the same place, at the same price to the same people. So you should, in theory, try and find every way you can to drive competitive advantage to your property. And you should take down any barrier that would prevent somebody from coming to your property, which on that basis alone, an understanding you know, competitive strategy, putting a barrier to entry is a terrible, or cost or a cost to entry is a terrible you know, tactic to implement. So, you know, I, I, I don't get it, to be honest. You're giving your opponents a competitive advantage by not charging for parking where they're not. Uh, and for forever how much revenue you can make in the short term on it, in the long term, you know, significant studies show that if you upset your customers or don't value them, they will leave. And the other part of that too, Oliver, is the corporations that decided to do that wanted to change the culture, specifically the culture of Las Vegas. 
Well, the locals would have <laughs> very little to do with that. For example, locals would normally go into one of these resorts and take a client to lunch. Well, they're not going to take a client to lunch if they have to pay this ridiculous amount for either valet plus tip the guy or pay for self-parking and do all of that. They're going to take that client to an, uh, someplace off the strip, which doesn't charge for parking. I mean, to me, it was just so common sense not to do it. And yet somebody decided, oh, yeah, this is fine. We're going to change the culture. And clearly, yes, Los Angeles and other major markets do charge for parking. However, even in Los Angeles, I don't believe you're charged for parking to go to the supermarket. And people are not going to go in the supermarket if they have to pay for parking. It, the parking should serve as a pathway to your property. And it's a, as you just mentioned a moment ago, it's a barrier that they set up unnecessarily, and they ended up shooting themselves in the foot. Correct. And, and you know, I think a, a, a lot of this was obviously pre-pandemic, so it was a completely different environment where these decisions were made. If you analyze the value of customers, uh, and there's uh, some research done on this, I can't remember where you can find it, and I, I haven't got it to hand, but the value of, of a convention customer is about $200 more than a normal regular tourist customer, which is, which is about $400 more than a drive-in from LA customer. So I'm guessing a conversation had been had somewhere that how can we drive additional revenues from that drive-in Southern California customer because they are so less valuable than other customer segments. It's interesting because it's a complete reverse of the old view of convention attendees when prior to Sheldon Adelson coming in, the, the view of convention goers was that they're not, they're not going to see shows, they're not really spending a lot of money gambling, they're just using rooms and going to the conventions. And that, of course, totally changed. Now they're a very valued part of the overall marketing strategy for properties that have those facilities. Correct. I, I, so, so in, in my research, you know, I point to several inflection points in the history of Las Vegas, and undoubtedly, the opening and the business model that Adelson adopted with the Venetian was a turning point in terms of how the operators understood their business models and who would come to Las Vegas. Certainly, from the convention side, what is equally as valuable in an inflection point is the opening of the Cosmopolitan, which came, you know, ten years later. And the Cosmopolitan has brought a whole new demographic of customer that wasn't coming to Las Vegas before. That is the under 40s who are coming not necessarily to game, but for uh, an amenity-driven entertainment experience. And those customers, many of whom are driving customers as well, uh, you know, and that, that is the future of Las Vegas in my mind, is how you keep those customers coming on a more frequent basis especially now where we don't have the same level of amenities open or have, hadn't, have not had the same amount of amenities open in the last 12 months than we have had historically. Ironically, too, that it's not that easy to get into the Cosmopolitan in terms of just driving there or parking. And yet that doesn't seem to interfere with their business model and they're very successful. Well, it's still going into, into casino design for a second. When the Cosmopolitan was due to open, there were a lot of you know, skeptics in this town saying you can't have a multi-level casino resort. Because obviously, if you're familiar with the property, the food and beverage is on one end of the building and it's three stories high. And you know, the, the, a lot of the amenities are on multiple levels. And the traditional casino design model was having everything on a, on a single level. But 
you know, as we know, customers, especially those urban curious, is, is the term that the, the marketing people at Cosmopolitan use, you know, urban elites, for want of a better word, would come to the Cosmopolitan and find those that city type environment much more, you know, to, to their liking than the traditional laid out floor plan. And that's why I think that any property that is going to be developed subsequent to the Cosmopolitan, not just in Las Vegas, but in other markets, an awful lot of that casino design element will be seen and reflected in other markets. And, I'm, and it's not open yet, and Resorts World is due to open in a couple of weeks' time, but I'm guessing you'll look around and see an awful lot of things that were inspired by the Cosmopolitan in that property, like they were, by the way, in the Venetian generation before. Sure. Based on your research and your experience, are you optimistic about the future of Las Vegas, both from a marketing standpoint, a customer standpoint, and an infrastructure standpoint? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. Exactly. Um, I, I give you three minutes to answer it all. <laughs> okay. So, so let's, let's the, you know, the, the, the answer to the future is always in the past. And my parallel to this time, the last 12 months, was the MGM fire in 1980. So you had a double dip recession going on in the wider macroeconomic situation. You had the fire and people were questioning whether MGM, uh, whether Las Vegas hotel rooms were safe. And thirdly, you had the advent and proliferation of gaming on the East Coast and Atlantic City. So a lot of the high rollers moved elsewhere. And people asked themselves, is Las Vegas, does it have a future? And two things happened. Number one, Las Vegas pivoted to the new customer that wanted to come to Las Vegas. So the properties that did well were those that clearly identified who their customers were and developed an offering for those customers. So the likes of Caesars Palace, Circus Circus, had a clearly defined customer, and they were dominant in that decade. You had the likes of the Riviera, where you know Burger King was put in, which clearly you know positioned that property for a particular type of customer. And then it took until 1989, nearly a decade after the fires, with the Mirage opening, that brought that excitement again. And the Mirage reinvented the city and led to the development boom of the 1990s. We're in a situation now where we can learn those lessons. There's a, a an economic crisis, which is you know generally yet to be reflected in wider society. We have a health, we've had a health crisis, which has, you know, asked people whether Las Vegas was safe. And, you know, with online sports and online gaming and sports betting on your phones, you can gamble from your, in many states, you can gamble from your cell phone. So why do you need to get on a plane and come to Las Vegas? So the answer in my mind is by looking at the past and saying, okay, we need to understand who our customers are. And that varies from resort to resort, from property to property. We need to create an offering for those customers to make them love our properties, to inspire loyalty, to make them come back and want to come, you know, come back to Las Vegas. And it's not just about, it's not just about gambling. And I think there's a, there's a, we're fortunate that, you know, and we're putting an awful lot of, of, of hope in to the fact that Resorts World is going to be opening up so shortly after COVID. And there seems to be other development and renovations happening on the Strip uh, and off the strip, which may also, a new market entrance, which may also act as catalyst to bring people to market. So I think whereas between 1980 and 1989, you had a, a nine-year repositioning period, I think certainly within 
Las Vegas, they could, the recovery could take only a couple of years, which is why I think 2022 will be remarkably strong. Well, that's a great way to end it. My guest has been Oliver Lovett. He's a leading academic, researcher, writer, and strategy consultant. For everything about Oliver, go to Denstone Group. That's D-E-N-S-T-O-N-E, denstonegroup.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Ali Lovett. Oliver, thanks for being on the show. Pleasure. Thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ivor David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah,